As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 84 of the Former Action Guys podcast, and I'm your host, Justin Kramer. And this week, yeah, my buddy on, Christopher Herr, who uh, we served together at 10th Marines. He's a fire support man. He served with 3-6 during the uh, Battle of Marja, the push into Marja. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. Really great episode. He, um, you know, describes like the Hilo Inn, the assault, and some of the stuff that they ha- that they did there. Really excellent episode. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this is an audio version only, and I, part of it is lost. I'm not sure what happened. It was like two of my systems or something crashed, and I lost a lot of information. But thankfully, we got all of his um, Afghanistan time and everything like that. And that's a, that's a basically where it cuts off is at the end when he's when he's back from Afghanistan. So all that stuff's covered. We'll just have to do another one with him uh, in the future and talk about the other stuff that he did afterwards and what he's up to now. He he is the owner of a music studio in Michigan, and he didn't obviously because we're cut off. I didn't realize we were cut off. Um, he didn't have the opportunity to promote his own business, so I'm going to do it here for him. Check him out on Instagram. It's at North Tower Studio. That's North Tower Studio and at BDB Band. And one more, at Official Amber Band. So he's in multiple bands and he um, owns a music studio and he also does some contracting where he trains law enforcement and military. So really interesting. Check him out. Uh, support his page. Um, he's on. He told me he's on Facebook as well. So you can look up North Tower Studio on Facebook as well and see him there. And yeah, so really good stuff. Uh, got another review in. So I really appreciate that. If you're out there, make sure to hit me a review on Apple Podcasts or the only one that that allows it. This one's from Dominguez132. Uh, he said, I came here because of Ski. Talking about uh, Golombeski, who was on episode 82, and he's the uh, author of Level Zero Hero. So, the author of Level Zero Heroes posted on his Instagram that he was going to do a podcast. Since that podcast has come out, I have listened to eight, <laughs> eight days of different stories. I was in the armies and infantrymen and can definitely identify with a lot of the stories that have been put out by a lot of the guests on this podcast. It is more of a realistic take on what our servicemen and women have been through and continue to go through. I definitely recommend to give a listen if you're interested in or have been in the military. Hey, man, really, really appreciate the the review and the the binge listening of the podcast. That's great. Um, I do the same thing with podcasts that I enjoy. I, I If I find one that I enjoy, I sit there and listen to a bunch of them. So I appreciate you checking it out. I'm glad the word got out through uh, Golombeski or Ski's uh, Instagram page. Hey, just like that, like I said, I've been saying the last couple of weeks, you know, everyone just, uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, all I ask is you tell one person or maybe post it up on your social media that you're enjoying it or something like that. Just to let people know, spread the word, help me out here. So 
yeah, without further ado, well, actually, make sure to check out my Instagram at former action guys. So check that out and uh, enjoy the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know, for the election cycle, which is probably really smart. You know, mm -hmm. like, I've already been on Facebook this morning like, what are you talking about? Like, people like, oh, what the fuck, your, your video moved. Um... People talking about uh, just some a lot. There's a lot of misinformation out there, and it's unfortunate, you know. And it's like I really wish, as a journalism student, I see a lot of it now, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm aware of like what's occurring on some stuff, and it's just it's tough for me to see and stomach and see the amount of people that are so like misguided because they just you know, they're set on their way of how things happen and stuff like that. But I felt like we should at least mention the election since it is, I guess, ongoing, you know, while they, count yeah, of these, course, while they count this. Do stuff. you remember back when I was in, I, I was with politics, like people were with sports. Mm. I could tell you like every representative and every Senator mm -hmm. and all the bills they proposed and how they voted down to the, the names and everything. Yeah. When I got to the Marine Corps, I realized that I spent years Dealing with that, thinking that I was like doing a service to America and my peers and friends. And I just realized that a lot of them didn't want me to do that or didn't care or weren't interested. And I was just wasting just huge amounts of time. So when I got out, I got away from all politics altogether. Really? And I only like right around the elections, just get a little bit and talk to some people and get back in it just a bit and then shut that back off again. I tend to think it's more important to tend to the part of the garden that you can reach, yeah. which is like your neighborhood, your friends, your family, your church, your city, things like that, and deal about caring about things there and making changes there rather than complaining about what's happening. And, you know, I'm in Michigan, you're in San Diego. I can't be like, oh, you know, I can't believe they're doing that in San Diego. What's going on? But there's nothing I can do about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I'm, I'm kind of going through that now where I am uh... – I'll I'll get into political discussions online and comments and Twitter on Facebook, like all of it, just because I think it's like I said before, it's just it's hard for me to see the amount of misinformation and out of context information that floats around unchecked. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. and as someone that's a journalism student, you know, and someone that follows politics like you described, you know, the same way. Um. It's just, man, it's it's tough to see people making decisions based off incorrect information and stuff like that, rather than the you know taking a moment to step back and kind of look into stuff and figure it out what it is. And I mean, I guess that's part of the reason what made me decide to to pick journalism because I I think we've seen 
if anything else, look at the polls that all the mainstream media outlets put out prior to the election and look at how close the results actually are. Like if you looked at the initial polls, you would have thought that Biden had this, you know, this huge blue wave that everyone had been talking about is occurring and that, you know, Trump has no chance. And here we are day two waiting on votes to come in because it's so close. And some of these polls had Biden winning by like 12 points and shit like that. You know, it's just and it's like, how can you how can you still pretend to be an unbiased you know, truthful or accurate outlet of information when you're coming out with information like that, that is completely just way off the charts and completely wrong, you know? And, um, I don't know, man, I'm, I spend too much time on it. I'm like you where I I have moments where I'm like, what am I doing? Like, is this worth it? But I feel like someone's got to say it, man. Someone's got to, someone's got to put the truth out there and shit like that. And I don't get into a lot of politics on the podcast just because I don't, you know, people come here for the stories of us and, you know, in the military and, and these, uh, you know, the guys that are police officers and stuff like that. They don't want to hear politics and stuff. Again, I'm only bringing this up because the election, you know, began last night. It's still ongoing at the time of this recording. Um, but yeah, I don't know, man. It's just, uh, it's a weird world we're living in and I'm not, I'm not too, uh, I'm not too happy with the other people that claim to be journalists that are out there and, and some of the reporting that's being done and stuff like that. So anyway, um, let's move on from that, man. So like I said, uh, it's been a long time, dude. I think, fuck, man, when's the last time we even spoke together? Was it, pro- I mean, in person was probably before my deployment to Afghanistan, right? In 2011? I saw you guys after that. I saw okay. you guys come back. Um, so when did you guys leave? You guys left, it was like May of 11 or yeah, something. Yeah, we got left, back and I right? got back on actually New Year's Day of 2013 or 12, excuse me, 2012. So, yeah, I saw you like in early 2012 uh, when you guys made it back from six Marines back over to 10th Marines. I went and visited you all. And I think that was probably the yeah. last time. So it's it's interesting because I did that deployment with 3rd Battalion, 6th <clears throat> Marines to Marja. And all I fucking heard about on that deployment was three six Marja Marines. This this isn't the this isn't like you know this isn't like the first Marja. And it was like anyone that was with three six during the push into Marja were like, you guys weren't there. This doesn't count. And I'm like, all right, dude, calm down. And I thought it was uh, I thought I just thought it was funny um, how people acted like that and stuff like that. But I wanted to have you come on the show because. Um, I know you've had an interesting career. I know you had a good time as an 0861. Um, I think you were probably one of the best, you know, one of the best scouts that I had when I was at 10th Marines. For those that are listening, you and I worked together when we were at 210. Um, I was like the A chief or whatever under Gunny Klein at the time. And um, I actually hadn't met you guys. You guys had all punched out on deployment before I got there. Um, And then when you guys all got back, you know, I was there. and yeah, and that's, so that's how we, we kind of met. And it was cool because it was seeing you guys come back from this, you know, the push into Marja and stuff like that and bringing this real world experience back to the shop. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it was very beneficial because I was a lap mover, had not deployed yet as an 0861. And, you know, it was good hearing like, Hey, what's it really, you know, what's really being done over there? What's how are processes really going, you know, playing out and stuff like that. And it was also good especially good for the scouts. I mean, I, I deployed as the fires chief. So, you know, I was working in the COC a lot of the time, but it was really good for the scouts to come back and hear the guys like you that were out on patrols, out doing missions and stuff like that to hear what was really happening on the ground and how there's how your skills are being utilized. So 
I want to talk about all that. I want to talk about all that stuff, but first I want to get, I want the audience to get a good background of who you are and, uh, you know, why you joined the Marine Corps. So if you want to, you know, tell us about why one, why did you choose to join the military and why did you choose the Marine Corps specifically? Yeah, well, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, one, my name is Christopher Hearn. I was born and raised in Michigan and I joined out of Michigan when I was 24 years old, which is kind of late for a lot of people. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, before that, I played, you remember, in a heavy metal Christian band, which you always called life metal. I called it the life metal. And I played in that band, and we toured from about 2002 to 2008, uh, almost like extensively full-time Mm year-round. And then uh, I joined the Marine Corps in 2008 when I saw, like, I didn't feel like it wasn't going to go anywhere, but I wasn't where I wanted to be Mm -hmm. in, in the band, in life, things in general. And prior to being in a band, I grew up loving the military. My dad was never a part of my life, and my mom was always busy, so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, and they were like, well, we'll just put them in front of the TV. Mm -hmm. So I legit feel like I was raised by 1980s action heroes. (laughs) And back then, they all were always like, I'll do the right thing no matter what. Mm -hmm. Even though everyone else is not doing it, I'll do the right thing. I'll stand for what's right. And back then, a lot of them didn't swear and didn't smoke and do stuff like that. And I was like, I want to be like those guys. So that's what got me loving the military. I saw like Navy SEALs when I was like five years old. Yeah. I watched Aliens back then. I watched, um, you know, like Saving Private Ryan in the movie theater as soon as it came out. Yep. And um, Black Hawk Down, all of that stuff. And I was like, I'm totally going to do that. I'm going to be one of those guys. Mm-hmm. And then I became like a late teenager and started playing guitar and made a band and started gaining some popularity and then got big enough that we got signed to a record label and started touring. And then my whole focus was like, yeah, I'm going to be a famous rock and roll star. And I took that pretty far and um, I didn't get as far as I wanted, but I had gotten married. I bought a house. I, we were going to have a kid. And I was like, oh, I feel like I, I feel like that's kind of like a teenage thing to do. I need to grow up. So then I talked with my wife and she said, you know, you've always loved the military. If you want to do something like that, feel free to do that. And I thought, you know what? All right. You know, because I always thought she was like 100 percent against it. Yeah. And she said, no, I'd be totally for it. I want to get out of Michigan. I want to go see some of the world, other states and things like that. So then we joined up and shipped out. And that's how I got into the Marine Corps. Yeah. No, that's cool. Did you now when you decided to come in? Well, first off, touring with a Christian like metal band, I think a lot of people think about like you know, uh, rock stars and stuff going on tour and like the debauchery and the, you know, the fun and craziness that the of things that happen on tour and the stuff that they get into. What, mm-hmm. what's that like for like a, a, a Christian band, you know, that's going on tour? It's funny because if you're in a Christian community, you're just like, Oh, it's everyday life. We listen to like the best, most crushing heavy metal music there is. People live for Jesus. They live for others. They care about, the community, the people themselves, they like playing music and they like to have fun in the way teenagers do like, you know, going to restaurants, sharing stories and spending time with other people like that. Mm-hmm. We just didn't, we just didn't get drink at all or get drunk or do anything like that. Like all the other metal bands do. Yeah. Or, uh, not metal bands, but, uh, all like, you know, secular bands that are into the whole party life and party scene and things like that. And then you talk to somebody who's not familiar with Christian metal music or anything like that, or metal music in general, and they think, like, that's like a polar opposite. Christian metal, like, that's a joke, right? But if you look, the Christian metal community is pretty big. There's a lot of bands that are really good. And, um, yeah, so it's just, 
it's like, I mean, if you're not into rap music and you don't know the community and the culture and you yeah. see some of it, you're like shocked by it. Yeah. And then, I mean, the same thing, there's Christian rap music and there's secular rap music and, and everything in between. Yeah. You know, when you, That's all these, point. all of these communities, they're just people. It's yeah. just communities of people, and in every community of people, you'll find good, bad, the ugly, and everything in between. Yeah, that's true. Now, when you decided to pull the trigger and come in, what made you pick the Marine Corps specifically? And when you came in, did you come in as a fire support man initially, or um, were you open contract or something like that? Yes. So um, I talked to a friend who was in, well, a friend's brother who was in, and I said, what's all the best jobs You know, that's like in the fighting and this and that? And he talked about the infantry. He talked about being a scout observer. And he talked about like being a tank, you know, a tank crewman or a tank scout and things like that. Mm -hmm. And how my wife was like, I don't want you to be in the infantry because I wanted to join and be a scout sniper. I'd yeah. always wanted to do that since I was like five years old from watching like Tom Berenger and sniper and stuff like right. that. Yeah. And um, my wife's like, please just don't do something like that. You know, and I asked my uh, friend's brother, I said, well, what what's like combat, but doesn't sound like it is. He's like, oh, you could be a Ford observer. You could say, oh, yeah, I shoot cannons from real far away, and it's combat, but it's safe. So I told my wife, like, oh, I'm going to be – I told the guy, uh, his name was Sergeant France at the time, my recruiter. I said, uh, I want to be a scout observer or fort observer. What's that called? He's like, oh, yeah, fire support man. I was like, I want to be that. He's like, well, there's also these. I'm like, no, I want to be that or I'm walking out. I'm 24. I'm not. I'm here to play games. Like, yeah. I'm going to be this or I'm, I'm going to leave. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. And um, I told my wife, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be already far away, real safe, but still like a combat MOS. And she's like, all right, I'll allow it. And then I came in so at, kind of under. The, oh, go ahead. Yeah, just kind of under the guise that it, it would be safe, but still a combat field MOS. Yeah. So as an older guy coming in, I'm, I was the same way. I joined when I was 22. So you're, you're coming into the military with some life experience, a little, you know, you at this point, you were already married and stuff like that. Um how did you deal with like coming in as like a private and having dudes that are like younger than you telling you what to do and like, you know, dealing with that kind of thing? I think some of our there, I think I have listeners that are a little bit older that are considering to join. So I think that'd be some interesting information <clears throat> for them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of funny. I mean, I play as many of the games as the younger people had. Mm -hmm. I also just keep my I'll say I'll hammer out any work there is to be done and they'll be like this guy's completely reliable and I was like they'll just get off my back faster if yeah, that's the case sure. and then I had two NCOs one time which I still talk to them on occasion and they're still great friendly guys but I joined and I was a near diabetic mm. I had hypoglycemia so I could only have sugar-free stuff right and I was a roommate with Ori Howe if you remember oh, Ori yeah. Howe. I still talk to him and uh, yeah I talked to him too and um we shared a room, and I had a bunch of – I liked glass bottle pops. I've always liked that. I had a bunch of diet glass bottle pops in my fridge, and a bunch of my NCOs came in when I was gone, and they were drunk, and they drank them all. And I came in, and they were gone, and then I was like, who drank those? And they came in, and Ori's like, oh, these two drank them. And I was like, you drank my stuff? And they're like, watch it, Private. I'm a corporal. And I put them both on blast so hard. I said, look, man, you freaking take something that you don't even enjoy – and then you drink it, that's even worse. If you'd taken it and would have loved it, that would have been great. But then you come in and tell me it was terrible. I was like, I don't care what rank you are. I'm older than you. You don't come in and steal something from somebody else just because you think you have this right to. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, oh, all right. And then they never bothered me again after that. Yeah. I and think then I did it. Oh, go ahead. And then I had one other incident where um, 
I just had an NCO who didn't like me. And I think it was, I don't know what, I don't know what the deal was. Um, but he gave me the lo- the lowest pros and cons you could get. Hmm. And he was a Lance Corporal. He'd been in six years oh, and was about to get out and um, just said, like, your uniform's disheveled. You're not a team player. You think you're better than everyone else. You have a poor attitude, a poor work ethic, all this stuff. And I was like, I think you're thinking of someone else. He's like, no, I'm not. And then uh, the gunny who was in charge of us at the time was like, just sign it and get out of there. So I signed it and left. And then right after that is when Staff Sergeant Han came hmm. at the time, Staff Sergeant Han. Yeah. And then he he's like, all right, here's your pros and cons. I guess that's what you are. And then from then on, I was like, no, absolutely not. And then I had maxed out pros and cons all the way until I became an NCO under nice. Staff Sergeant Han after that. Yeah. But I think I think, I think in regards to being older coming in, those are the only incidents I ever had. And other than that, I think everyone knows that you're older. And if you have a good work ethic and no one likes complainers. You're going to run your mouth the whole time. It's going to really bring out. If you can just remain quiet and just do as you're told, I think really quickly they'll get over a lot of the new guy, you know, type feelings yeah. they have towards you real quick. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, for me, the the biggest issues for me is that, you know, when I first showed up, PFC Kramer got to the fleet. My platoon sergeant was 21. I think I was 23 when I got to the fleet. And he was like, hey, are you living on base? Or, he, you know, he found out, he, he knew I got married on uh, boot leave. I'm one of those guys. And um, he's like, are you going <laughs> to live out in town or on base? And I was like, I'm going to live on base. I plan on living on base. He's like, okay, make sure one of your NCOs goes with you when you go to buy furniture and stuff. And I'm like, I told him, I was like, with all due respect, Sergeant, I was like, I'm older than you and all my NCOs. And I've lived on my own for like the last four years. I don't need one of you guys to come with me to go buy a washer and dryer. And um, mm-hmm. they didn't really like that. <laughs> they didn't really like that, you know, someone <laughs> someone is coming at them with some common sense. And I get it, man. I'm a private or I'm a PFC. Like, what do I know? I, you know, it, it, it was stuff like that, you know, and like what you're saying, like, hey, man, that's my shit. Just because you're a corporal doesn't mean you can just take my shit, you know, and we're old enough to understand that, whereas an 18-year-old would probably just let it happen and just stew on it rather than say something. you know. And I think that's the biggest difference I've seen with older guys coming in is a lot of times they have common sense, and unfortunately they want to you know, bring that up and say something about stuff, and sometimes people in leadership positions uh, don't approve of that. That was the whole point. That was the whole reason I even got put on the EFSS project the expeditionary fire support system, the 120 millimeter mortar and stuff to work on that was because they didn't like me. <laughs> Cause when I showed up, I was like, <laughs> Hey, I don't need my NCOs to come buy shit for me. I'm a, I'm an adult. And they didn't really like that. So they just sent me away to go do that, which was like the best thing that could have happened. So, mm-hmm. um, after you like, w- so you got, you went to MOS school, you know, Fort Sill, how was Fort Sill for you again, as an older person? Uh, I mean, all of the instructors were really cool. It was pretty laid back. We did a huge pull-up competition, and uh, all the people with the most pull-ups would have gotten something at the end, and they would tell you every single day, and me and three or four other guys like hit it super hard, and just because they were like, yeah, these guys are staying in, and a lot of other people dropped off, mm-hmm, we already, they were like, these guys get a pass with us because they're trying harder than everyone else out of the gate. Uh, that was all cool. Yeah, yeah. I do have some really funny... A really funny story about Fort Sill and something that happened there. And um, do you remember or ever heard about the Royal Rumble of 2008 at Fort Sill? No, no I can't, I can't say, that, say I that I have. Okay, so we're all there, and we have this guy 
which funny enough, he he failed out of being a scout, went to try to do something else, didn't make it, fell out of that, went to something else. And then when I left, I hadn't seen him for a while. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. when I came back to 10th Marines years later, after going to other units and coming back, he was at 10th Marines and he was he made it somewhere, but he was just like an office, you know, like a Bob. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Bob. I haven't heard Bob in forever. Yeah, and I, was, and I just couldn't believe it. But this character, we were – you remember how they would pick you up on, like, the cattle car buses and stuff and take you to different places yeah. Yeah. on that's, Fort Sill? That's the only place I've ever seen that. We got picked up, and we were going someplace, and he said some sexually inappropriate thing to the bus driver. Mm-hmm. She went and sent up a, a complaint to the base general, and like right away, all these like high up army personnel showed up, was doing a full investigation. All that stuff was going on. They said, to, you know, all the class command, all the class cadre was like, "Tell us who did it." And we went into a closet and we told them all who did it. And then the one person who did it said, "I don't know who did it." And they said, <laughs> "Well, we want the one person to admit it," and he refused to admit it. So our so the entire class of scouts got put on restriction. Really? So really? for the whole duration of us being there, we were on restriction. He then, we go to the field. He then causes some problems with a handful of guys who throw him down a mountain. We call him the hill tumbler. He falls and he busts his head. He gets dropped from our class, goes to waiting training. As soon as he gets back to waiting training, he gets his freedom back. And we're all still on restriction. <laughs> and then everyone's like, you need to turn yourself in. He's like, no way, dude. I'm out in town and this and that and blah, blah, blah. He's like, I'm not going to give this up. Yeah, yeah. So he left the entire class of us, the other 29 of us, on restriction while he was back to freedom again. That's crazy. That's crazy. And then during all of this time we're all on restriction, there was, uh, I don't know who it was, just some Marine that worked there that was assigned uh, as a cadre member at Fort Sill in one of the classes, was doing duty one night. He was going through a divorce or something like that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Let everyone start partying on like a Saturday. Told people to bring girls and booze back to our uh, our area, our battery area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people were just getting out of control and people were throwing like glass bottles at people's cars and all this stuff. And the MPs got called once. They left. Got called again. They left again. He formed a huge formation. And he's talking to everyone and he's mad. He starts taking off his chucks and he's like, I, I like your daddy to all you. You know, then I take care of all you, blah, blah, blah. He's like, who called the cops somebody? Was it you? And just starts punching a kid. Oh, and oh, as geez. soon as he punches this kid, everyone just starts royal rumbling. Everyone's fighting everyone else. I remember this tall kid that was going to be an FTC guy screams, blood choke him right now! And he's dragging some <laughs> kid off. All these people are fighting. And you remember uh, Hoyle? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hoyle and I both got put on. They asked, hey, who here doesn't drink? And we're like, we don't. And they're like, you guys are going to be road guards all day long. And you're going to be roving around and keep an eye on everyone. So we're both on this type of road guard type duty where we're just roving around. Yeah, yeah. While this huge Royal Rumble breaks out, we're trying to break everyone up and get everyone back in their rooms and stuff. All the command comes in. All the stuff happens. A couple days goes by that that uh, that Marine that was working there got NJP'd, uh, explained you know, that he was going through a divorce and lost his kid, lost his wife. All the stuff was happening to him. Alcoholism had taken over. Alcohol affected him that day. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, just all of my peers that I talked to about that time, we always just talk about the Royal Rumble of 2008 back at Fort Sill. And that was, like, one of the high points, non-curriculum-based, of our Fort Sill experience. Those are, those are like, those moments are, like, the best moments. And those, like, like you said, you and your friends from there still talk about it. 
you know, that's the kind of stuff that really bonds guys. Those crazy, like little adventures you get yourself into or like little weird things that would never happen in the real world that just kind of, you know, happens. happens and, and, yeah. Mutually shared trauma builds deep bonds with one another. For sure, man. For sure. Um, I'm going to pause real quick. Um, for some reason your video froze. Anyway, back to your career, man. We got, um, my, I had some issues here, so we stopped there. Um, let's talk about getting to the fleet and kind of what you expected when you got to the fleet compared to the reality uh, of that. And then, then kind of, and then kind of go into some of the training, the more advanced training you got, you know, that to build on what you learned in MOS school. Sure. So before I joined, I thought like all Marines were super elite, like special forces. The Marine Corps doesn't need any special forces because every Marine's special and things yeah, like right. that. So I learned like all the moon phases and like the phases of the tides and all kinds of like advanced advanced navigation and all kinds of stuff. And I got to the Marine Corps and I realized that a lot of it was it really is set up for like the lowest tier. Like we need to get everyone across the finish line. So here's here's the amount of depth we'll go into things to get you across the finish mm -hmm. line if you want to be up here like you need to go above and beyond on your own to mm -hmm. do that which i didn't mind doing it it was a hobby of mine at the time and i've always been interested in stuff like that but i just thought it was i thought it'd be a lot more intense and a lot more i thought it'd be harder actually and it, it wasn't as hard as i thought it was going to mm -hmm. be and then really quickly when you get to the fleet people start to settle back into like the new routine of uh you know working and not working and you're a Marine when you're on and when you're off, like you're off and like it's done for you there and stuff like that. And then pretty quickly we started getting moved around because, uh, you know, at that time period, there was a lot of deployments going on in two theaters, a lot of people coming and going. So we got there, oh. I think in December oh, of 2008, okay. of 2008. And then uh, did around that same time period, we did like a double CACs for two units when it was called CACs. And then, uh, like, right from there to, like, Fort Bragg. And then right from there to, like, uh, another CACs in the summer. And then assigned to unit to start the work up to deploy that, you know, the end of 2009. Yeah. So um, we did a double CACs. It was, like, right in, like, December, January time period um, for two different you units. Explain what, do you want to and explain then, what CACs is for the non-Marine Yeah, so CACs is just a... Yeah, so it's a combined arm exercise. So there's like tanks, artillery, the infantry is there tra training, the uh, amphibious vehicles are there training, the helicopters and birds are there training. And we go out to a desert in 29 Palms, California, and essentially it's as if you're, you're doing missions as if it's a real war and everyone is doing their part and you're trying to see how well you all can combine your communications and your planning assets and <laughs> essentially see how well your operations roll out and find all of your discrepancies and fix us before you deploy into a real mm -hmm. theater. So that's what those were. And uh, it later changed its name to Mojave Viper, then Advanced Mojave Viper, and then something else after that. I don't remember yeah, what it was. What it yeah, but I mean, like, I feel like when you come in and uh, an event is called something, even though the event stays the same that the name changes, you always stick to the first thing it was called when you when you yeah, get in there. Yeah, sure. So, so, I mean, to me, it's still CACs and everyone else calls EMV it, you know, uh, EMV and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, but we did a few of those. We did the, the brag exercise. And then by then we were already starting to get stabilized to deploy with three, six okay. to the first Marsha push. So we did all of the work up with them. And then when they would have off times, they would send us back to 10th Marines to do stuff with 10th Marines as well. And then right back to three, six. So that whole year of 2009 was 
pretty much a whirlwind of going back and forth and doing two different types of field ops, doing the with the Victor units, doing all of theirs, and then coming back to 10th Marines and supporting the regiment as a whole there. And then we uh, deployed at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010 is when we all got into country. We came at a few, you know, a few different elements came at different times, but that's about the time period we all now, got in there. Now, this whole workup period, you know, you were, brought, what, a Lance Corporal during this time? Okay, so yep. during this whole workup period, you're a Lance Corporal. What, are, what did you know as a Lance Corporal about what you were getting ready to go do? Like, because... and. For those that are listening, like you guys, three six went into Marja. Marja, no one had really been into Marja before that, right? That was a kind of a wild west area. There were probably some missions and some patrols in that area, but the actual city center of Marja hadn't. There hadn't been an established footprint from the U.S. military at that point. So you coming up and being a junior guy and kind of seeing, and I will say that being a uh, forward observer, a scout, whatever you want to call it, you do get you do get a little peek behind the, the curtain and get a little better understanding of the bigger picture rather than the normal like 0311 Lance Corporal that's just told to, you know, go that way or clear that house or whatever. So what what kind of information were you receiving and were you kind of, I don't know, did it make you nervous? Did it, were you excited? Like how, how were you feeling as a new guy? I was pretty excited because, you know, if you jo- if you like, if you, spend your whole life to be like a race car driver, you want to race the car, yeah. you know what I'm saying? If you join the military because you want to be a fighter, like you want to go be a part mm-hmm. of that. Uh, no one wants to join the military and do 20 years and get up and be like, well, I never deployed. I never, got to, I never got to do what I trained for 20 years to do. I just trained for 20 years, essentially. No one wants yeah. that. So I think the feeling amongst all of us were pretty excited. Some of the other guys were a little younger, so I think they had a little bit more nervousness than I had. Um, but in general, everyone was pretty excited. There was no real scouts who deployed in the form of doing their jobs that were ahead of us. All of our peers, they were like, well, we were all in Iraq. There were no big guns were shooting. We weren't, you know, dropping a lot of air at this time. We were doing a lot of handing out soccer balls and things like that. So they were just like, you're all going to freaking die. Or they were like, oh, you're going to sit in a COC and do nothing. And like they, it's not that they weren't really not helpful, but they just didn't have that real experience of what it would be like. And uh, so I spent a lot of my time talking to the uh, mortar FOs, with 3-6 that had deployed and did the previous Iraq deployment just before that and said, hey, you fire mortars, what was it like, and this and that, and how'd you do it? And for people who don't know the difference between like a mortar FO and an artillery FO, they're very relaxed, and they'll just talk and use the first names, and it's just like, hey, uh, I'm here, shoot north of me a couple hundred meters, and like they'll be like, yeah, we can shoot that, because their, uh, their piece of eye for their impact is not nearly as big as like a 155 round. Yeah hitting somewhere and stuff like that so uh there's not as many restrictions on it It doesn't go as high doesn't go as far they're you know they're organic to that squad that's there and that's where like the uh committee you know the authorization can go can be called from them rather than being called back for something bigger so i just went off of their experiences and talked to them and at cax we did a, a cax with them in the fall of 2009 yeah, I guess it was around August we went there, and uh, I watched them do it, and they're like, "You can do it for us," and vice versa. So I got some of that, and then we shot a lot of uh, we shot a lot of one five fives out there and stuff too. So like that was my first real experience of doing it with the full mm-hmm. company that I was going to be deploying with. So I just figured deploying would be very similar to that, and it was uh, to an extent. It was a little bit more restricted when you're in a you know when you're in country and there's a lot more risk. Mm-hmm. 
uh, both of civilians and other friendlies in the areas and stuff like that. But it was pretty similar overall. So I think that whole workup did a pretty good job of preparing us to go there. I don't think we got there and we were clueless in what was going okay. on. Yeah. So when you guys first went to Afghanistan, did you already get, did you already know that you're going to be going into Marja and clearing that area or was it, was there a different mission and then it switched to that? No, we knew that's what we were going to okay. do. So were you guys pre- preparing yep. for that clearing operation that you were going to be undertaking? Correct. Yeah. We did a lot of, I mean, a lot of like, uh, rock walks and a lot of the looking at the big sand tables and talking about it and everyone going over their parts and plans and contingencies and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, whole lot of that happened. And then when we got to Afghanistan, we had a couple of weeks before we actually were going to go and do the insert. So we also would just prepped for it, prepped for the initial, uh, invasion part of it there and went over things and found weaknesses in our armor and tried to fix those before we'd go into it and find them, you know, when you're actually on the two-way rougher range and stuff like that, rather than for sure uh, back training. Were you, guys, was, were you guys staged out of Leatherneck or something like that? Or was it even built? So we then? started in Leatherneck. We started at Leatherneck, and it was half built, and then we moved to Dwyer. And when we got to Dwyer, there was like three tents and a couple Hescos, and like mm-hmm. that was it. And then when we flew back through with Dwyer, Dwyer was like a huge, like it was like a full base and stuff like that. Yeah, it was they crazy. bring in those shipping container like housing units, the Chews is what they call them. We used to call them, we called mm-hmm. them cans in Iraq. But uh, when I went through Dwyer, yeah, in 2011, it was pretty built up. Nothing like Leatherneck, obviously, but it was still like not a bad place to be hanging out. Um, yep. Now that, since you guys were there and you had a couple weeks before the invasion started, were you just staying on base and just doing kind of, you know, refinement on base? Or did you guys go out on any actual patrols outside of the wire just to kind of get your feet wet a little bit? So the wire was quite small. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you would just go a little bit and you'd be past the HESCO and it was just a desert. Oh, okay. We were just like, this whole area is your training area. Go mm-hmm. and use it. So for weeks, we just used all of that area. Okay. Yeah. I was only at Dwyer for like a day. So I don't even realize, I don't even really know. So it's out in the middle of nowhere then, huh? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a, the actually the only time I went to Dwyer was when I flew in with three six. That's where we went to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of, where, where did your like preparations focus? Um, like what, you know, you guys inserted via helicopter, right? Was there any, any ground Correct. inserts on the three six side? Not initially. So everyone, both with one six and three six, they had those ground elements. Mm-hmm. So for three six on the North and for one sixes on the South, and then they flew in the center elements and dropped them off. And that's where all the fighting okay. began. And then those ground elements moved in to join up with us. Okay. And it took them a little, yeah, it took them a little while so to get in So you were there. part of the elements that flew into the center and just kind of started hooking and jabbing from the get-go. Uh, what company, platoon, and all that were you with, were you attached to? So I was with Kilo Company. And I was in first, I spent most of my time with first platoon. And I spent most of the time with third squad. But um, I was the only Ford observer, so all the time the other platoons and the other squads would uh, they'd be like, "Hey, uh, you want to come out with us?" And just all the time I'd go out, and it was me. There was an uh, a mortar fo named Greer, and then we had one radio operator, and then we had our officer fo that was there, but he stayed in the coc and would be the bigger picture, talking to me, and vice mm-hmm. versa. Our radio operator spent most of the time in the COC with him. And then me and Greer would just kind of flop between all. He spent most of the time with third platoon. I spent most of the time with first. And then second, we would just kind of uh, fill in the gaps where okay. it needed. So, 
and um, and vice versa. You know, if he was gone, but there was some big patrols going on or some big movement at contact, and they wanted somebody else. I would just, you know, like jump and ship and you go go with whoever was yeah. going out. So that you bring up a good point, how your your um, forward observer. So that for those that are out there and aren't in the artillery world, the artillery officer is actually the forward observer on the team. That's his actual title. Whereas you know you're the scout or the fire support man, and then the radio operator, obviously. A lot of times, like what you had happen, the FIST, the fire support team, which is a, you know, artillery officer, an artillery scout, like a senior scout, maybe like a junior scout, like radio operator, stuff like that. That's how the fire support team is built. A lot of the times when we're attached to an infantry battalion, the battalion sees the value of having another officer and a radio operator, because let's be honest, the radio operators coming from artillery are usually really good because they have to be, you know, it's, it's like a forced thing to become good at your job when you're having to get comms with elements that are miles and miles away. So a lot of the times the radio operators, artillery battalions have are pretty good. And, and you know, correct me any of this that's wrong that you, that you may have seen, but when like my team attached to three, six, our radio operators became like the company radio chiefs. Um, our officers became the um, like senior watch officers for like the companies and stuff and also did their fire support and even information operation duties that they were tasked with. And then it all comes down to the scout is the one that is actually going out and doing everything. And this, this weird, I don't even know why we, I mean, I love the radio operators should definitely continue to be there, but I think we need to put more emphasis on calm training for scouts or they should do it on their own to, you know, do it because when in reality, you're not going to have a radio operator there to come help you. Like it's on you to have your radios ready on the right nets on the right, you know, everything like that ready to go. So, you know, I think, I think your, your deployment is not unique in that way. Um, whereas mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of how it is. So for, all the guys that are out there listening that are artillery officers, you know, even if you go out as a forward observer, you're probably going to end up in the uh, COC. So don't get too upset about that. So um, when you were out now, when you guys were, well, let's first off, let's back up before you guys helicoptered in, you want to talk about, were you there for that like moto speech that became super famous that gunny? um, He was a company gunny gave a speech. So that was one six, that really famous gunny speech. I will tell you about a funny speech that we had, though, uh, when we were going to go. So they initially said, you're going to get heloed in, and then we'll be able to support you within three days. I think it took them like 13 days to finally get to us, but they said three days. And, like, that, was the, that was the number going around as we're preparing. Mm-hmm. Like three days of water, three days of food, this and that, three days of ammo, three days of batteries. And uh, we get there, and our – I think it was – one of the company, I think it was a company master sergeant or something, was talking to all of us the day before he flew out. And he goes, three days. He's like pausing, three days. And somebody in the very back of the room just screams, for a lifetime of glory! <laughs> and everyone just like bursts into laughter and cheering and stuff that's like funny. that. So that's our funny moto story. We always joke and still be like, three days. And um, But then, yeah, we got the same moto speech. And then we all went out to the flight line and then um, got held there. And then it, we didn't fly out the day we thought we were going to. Came back for a few hours, flew out the next day, and then we inserted. So it was kind of a lot of waiting. Like, are we going? Are we not going? What's going yeah. on? Pretty typical you know? of the military, right? Yeah. Can you can you kind of can you kind of go through the emotions that you might have been feeling at the time when you were like on the helicopter, like flying in, like holy shit, dude, we're about to go like legitimately raid, you know, this town. 
so we were told that it was the largest aerial uh, invasion type operation since the end of the Korean War. I don't know how true that was, but that's what all the air wing guys were telling us. And we like, I mean, when we first got there, we had a couple Spectre gunships on station. We had like a, a section of like Apaches from the army on station. We had a lot of purple air on station. There's like a lot of assets. We had LAR surrounding all of Marja. And when we flew in, uh, my, so my, my squad that I was in from my platoon was going to be the furthest south element. The way it broke up, we were going to have a large number here, a large number here. And to the south, we were going to be down here kind of making like mm -hmm. a triangle. So we were going here. So we took off and flew first, and we put everyone on the bird, and I spent most of my time with a squad leader. His name is Raymond Shafars. He was great. We all called him Chief. Good friend of mine. I still talk to him all the time. Um, he and I, we were like the, some of the last few to get on the bird, and we flew off. We got on a 47, and it left a tail open, and we took off and left, and we all had nods on. We were just watching, and we just see all of these birds taking off. And it was just like a sea of birds taking off because we left Dwyer, went to Leatherneck, staged at Leatherneck, and that's where we all flew from because that's where all the aircraft oh, okay. were. And um, it was just crazy seeing all of those birds flying, just a huge line of birds, and seeing like mixed skids flying along in support of it and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And we all got dropped off. We were all super excited. We thought there was going to be just tons of shooting and fighting right out of the gate, but we got there. It was dark out, so it was just like silent. We just dropped like thousands of Marines all over, and it was just quiet. So it's like, oh, all right, we're here. Nothing's going on. Let's get to our spots. And we started trekking through the woods. It was freezing cold. Uh, couldn't see where we were going. Everyone's afraid to use white lights or red lights because I think it's just going to start a huge firefight. Mm -hmm. We finally make it to this compound that we're supposed to go hold. As soon as we get in it, the sun's coming up on the horizon, and as soon as we all got inside this compound, a huge ID went off right at the corner of the oh, doorway. No it was like two roads meeting by the door. Huge ID goes off. So then right away, everyone's like super mm -hmm. tense. And uh, this compound's full of people, mainly women, uh, a couple men and a bunch of children and we go and start talking to them and they all panic and they all just like get up and they all just like flee and leave and they just like run through the field way south just getting away mm -hmm. from there and uh half the people are like stop them half the people are like let them go get them out of here and then a few minutes after the sun came up a whole bunch of firing began and and that was it huh? that, that was, was the, the beginning kickoff. of it that was it did someone yeah for the whole how deployment. did that ied that went off get initiated uh, we don't know for certain. Our squad leader says that he, he saw a piece of rope and thought it was like marking rope for mm. farming and picked it up and was like playing with it. And then it went off. So we don't know if somebody initiated it or if he had something to do with it or it was what like it was. A pull string or something like that? It was, yeah, it was just like, someone's like, there's a rope here. He's like, oh, he's like, no, oh, I used to be a farmer. These are just, it's to mark your vegetable gardens. And it was like, <laughs> like right Jesus. after that. That's crazy. What a way to start though, right? Oh, yeah. All right. Yep. I mean. As soon as the sun came up. So you guys were told, hey, three days, we're going to be in there to resupply you after three days. What did they expect you to carry? Like, what was the average load that people were carrying? Can you kind of go through, like, the, the loadout? Yeah, so I carried a, a Blackhawk Titan backpack, If in case you guys don't know what those are. Those ones you could just buy from the PX that were, like, the same size as your regular pack, just a few more pouches mm -hmm. on it. I carried a 117. I carried... A 152. I carried four batteries for the 117, four batteries for the 152. I carried two 100 ounce bladders of water. I carried a bunch of ammo, probably like three or 400 rounds of ammo. I carried uh, three MREs. I packed a sleeping bag. 
One other guy packed a poncho, and no one else packed anything because, like, oh, we don't need that stuff. So we're out there trying to go to bed freezing, and no one's got anything to cover up with except for me and one other guy. And uh, what else? I mean, somebody hit, like, we're getting ready to leave. Some guy hands me an ICOM with a couple spare batteries. And they're like, yeah, you can use this to find the bad guys and, like, an earpiece mm. for it. Yeah. I had my I had my vector. I had my dagger. And um, I did not bring the tripod for it. And then I had... Uh, and then I had like I brought a toolkit, like a miscellaneous toolkit, and my pack was pretty heavy with all that. And then, I mean, people brought tons of ammo. We brought one guy had a small. We brought like six or seven rockets for it. We brought a couple AT fours. Uh, brought a couple laws. You guys were carrying the backpackable um, uh, licks too, right? The uh, line clearing charges. So line we charges. weren't initially. We weren't initially. We trained with them, but we weren't carrying them. We're on the bird ready to go, and a bunch of engineers are running up to the birds, and they just start screaming, carry these, and just start throwing them in over us, like into the bird, like minutes before yeah. we leave. So we're like, oh, we're carrying these too, and they were on the old Alice pack frames. So everyone's all super weighed down, so what we did is like a couple people would buddy up and also carry a Miklik pack, and one guy would carry the Miklik launcher, and they would just, because you know how they come in pairs yeah. back then? Okay. So... Just tons. I mean, people were just throwing tons of stuff at us. So let me let me break this down for maybe our non non military people. A one seventeen is like a larger radio. Uh, did you have the Fox or Golf? I imagine it's the Fox, right? Uh, the, which the, whichever one was the oh, newer the small one. one. Okay, so you had the no 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 the, the the big one that took two batteries, but was the newest. Okay, one Okay, so that's time. the one seventeen Fox. So that's a pretty heavy radio. Yep. That's uh, on its own carrying around. I mean, it's not like the heaviest thing in the world, but it's definitely not something you want to carry if you don't have to. A golf. Yeah, pre lithium batteries. Yeah, too. the one seventeen Golf is the same radio except it's half the size and only takes one battery. So you know, at the time, I don't think those had come out or they were so new they weren't really letting anyone use them. The uh, 152 is like a walkie-talkie. Think of like a walkie-talkie, but bigger, a little heavier. Um, and then the um, – what else did you say there? Oh, the the ICOM. The ICOM, the ICOM shared radio is like a standard yeah, walkie-talkie size. Yeah, exactly. It's your normal walkie-talkie. It's funny. In <coughs> 2013, our, uh, our linguist that we had when I was in Sangin with the advisor team – we would he would talk to the Taliban dudes on the ICOM. He would talk shit to them. They'd be like, "We're gonna fucking chop your heads off." He's like, "Fuck you, pussies! We're gonna kill you all!" And they're just like going back and forth. His name was Zap, and we're like, "Zap, quit talking shit to the Taliban! Like, what are you doing, dude?" <laughs> but that's the kind of radio that that is. The Vector Dagger <coughs> is the Vector is a laser rangefinder. The Dagger is a GPS that connects to it so that you can get like you know really good locations for stuff that you're lazing and stuff like that. So. Yeah, man. I mean, it seems like a pretty heavy loadout. When you guys got to that compound, were you staging gear there, or was that just a spot for you to initially roll up into, and then you're backpacking everything to the next place? Like, were you guys constantly on that's the move? What, well, correct. We thought that's what we were going to do, but we ended up holding that first major compound that was our waypoint was a good position, so we ended up staying there. That's where we stayed there for the first 13 days. Okay. And when going there, we had a ton of weight. A bunch of us, our bladders had popped. Mm. One of my 100-ounce bladders popped and leaked all over me, and it was freezing that night, freezing yeah. out. So you were told to be prepared for three days of combat actions, and then you'd get resupplied and stuff like that. How long did it actually take before yes. you got resupplied? Uh, we left that area like 13 days later, and we kind of consolidated at a big spot because we were going to now move from this area that we held over to – so this was like Marsha proper, the city. And my company was going to move to a part that was further to the east, and it was called uh, 
five points or oh, rally, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're ever hearing yeah. about that. So we went and consolidate, consolidated back in Marsha proper and um, moved from there over to Raleigh. So we only were in the, we took that Marsha proper in the first 13 days, moved consolidated, stayed two or three days there, and then did this big movement over to five okay. points. So if you weren't getting resupplied after three days, what were you guys doing for like food and water? Uh, we started eating their chickens and uh, boiling water. And then if we couldn't boil water, I would I would just drink it out of the canal. Ugh. The others would too, but a lot of them would get Ugh. sick. In the Marine Corps, a bunch of my buddies called me the iron stomach because I could eat and drink anything. I would never get That's... sick. They would all eat and drink stuff and get sick all the yeah, time. Yeah, I mean – Dude, drinking canal water—that's a—that's a—that's a gamble right there. You're gambling. Well, it's been like two when it's been like two days and you're you don't have any that, water. It's looking real good. That's at true, that point. man. That's uh, damn, man. That's <clears throat> you know, it's stuff like that that it's hard for regular people to understand. Like, it's situations like that where you're so desperate, you're drinking nasty canal water, where like it makes you appreciate the finer things in life. You know, the small things in life, being able to go turn on your tap. Like, I love how people complain about. This water tastes nasty. I would never drink this city water and they go get bottled water and shit. And I'm like, dude, the rest of the world wishes they had water like like that and you're complaining about it. Maybe it could be better, yeah. But like the the complaints that people have about shit like that just blows my mind. Um Yeah. So you wanna can you talk about like your first like sustained firefight, like the first time you were actually engaging, you know, being <clears throat> engaged and engaging back the enemy? Yep, it was that very first day, right when the sun came up. And uh, we got there, like, just at, just at, like, uh, you know, still civil twilight, essentially, like, just starting to see light over the horizon. And we started taking stuff from this compound and building, because the walls were, like, 12 feet tall there, building a bunch of posts in all the corners. And on the south side, where which was our focus, we built three sets of posts there. And we put up Americans in all the corners, and we put in Afghanis in the center, because we had four Afghanis mm -hmm. that were with us. And they started shooting at the center Afghani. Which we joked and called him Jackie Chan because he looked very Asian. And uh, he was a very entertaining, fun guy to talk and chat with. But they started shooting at him. He was the only one up on post at the time. He started screaming and ducking down. And um, we tell him to fire back. And he, he racks his M16 a bunch of times and starts shooting in the air. And I say, no, you need to look and aim. He goes, no, sir, it's good. And just starts shooting up. So I was like, get off there. And I climb up there and we all just start shooting back. And I remember thinking like right away, like it's not as scary as I thought it was. I don't know if it's because I'm older or because I played a bunch of video games or what, but like I thought I'd be terrified, but it's feels like being on a rifle do you, range. Do you think you, do you think you had that mentality because at that point you hadn't seen anybody get hit yet? I mean, maybe before going in, I read both on combat and on killing and I tried to build up, you know, that mental fortitude and mental toughness that, um, uh, Grossman talks about in those books and I try to like do a lot of you know tactical decision making games where you envision yourself in these situations and play them over and over again and what you would do to try to prepare for it to build file folders for when those situations arise and um I just felt like pretty calm overall and um I mean I don't know some of the younger guys seemed pretty scared some of the other some of them seemed real excited I didn't seem very scared I was like I remember clearly thinking like it's not near as scary as I thought it was going to be. Like, now it's time to, like, start working. And then it was almost like people say, uh, you know, it's like muscle memory, but muscles don't have memories. Your brain has neurological pathways. So, like, those start working. You know what I'm saying? And you start going back to your training and things that you've done and things you've prepared yeah, for. for. Sure. Yeah. And then from then on, it was a firefight from, like, sunup to sundown every day for, like, the whole deployment, essentially. Really? Except, for the poppy, except for the poppy harvest. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, man. It's um, everyone deals with situations like that differently, you know, and I think that's one of those things that uh, we'll never probably understand that. But it's like you you'll never under you'll never know how someone's going to deal in a situation, deal with a situation like that until they're in that situation. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know? as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. People that you think are like the best dudes ever could crack and and not, you know, not be able to do their job because it, it, it can be scary, you know, especially especially when you start seeing casualties, when casualties begin occurring. That's when you know, the reality for a lot of people set in and stuff like that. Um, at what point were you ever like called up to, to actually do your job as a forward observer rather than just being another rifleman firing back? When did you do your first fire mission? First day right away. Yep. Uh, we had a set of guns. So we set up Fiddler green to Mm -hmm. the South and we also had a set of guns that was to the North at what we called the ANCOP at the time. And it was just a spot that was North of Marja where they essentially built the command that's where the command was going to stay just north of the city and the very first day we called in 155 dumb rounds and they got approved and fired for us at my position there was a huge cluster of compounds to the south that had a huge wall with i mean essentially it was like a big row of compounds several deep several wide with a big wall there and they were using tons of positions there to fire at us to the people that were to our west and to the element that was like south and stationed in between the two of us. It was like a huge, you know, there was tons of fighters. There's machine guns firing, AKs firing, sniper fire coming from there. And uh, we called for approval right away and they approved it and they fired them. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget what it was like. For those of you who don't know what artillery sounds like, if you fire it overhead and it's low coming in, because it was pretty close to us, about 600 meters away. It sounds like boo, yep. boo, 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 just yep. like that. And not and so it's Marja. Everyone's excited. We're going to do this huge invasion. Every asset's like, we're going to fire as much as we can. We want to do all kinds of stuff. We're going to use air. We're going to do rockets, everything. We're going to fire it all. And, um, you know, all the troops are looking to fight. We call in for these missions. They fired tons of rounds for us, and it flew right overhead. And all of these infantrymen had never heard it before. Mm. So from overhead, we hear a ton of, and they all start jumping off their posts and like running to get inside and screaming like, what's that? What's that? And I'm just like, oh, it's me. It's me. It's just dumb rounds. It's one five fives. And they started impacting where we we're shooting. And then they're all like, oh, yeah, right back into the fight nice. again. Who was, who, so, do you know who was shooting for you? What battery? No, I don't remember. There was a couple batteries and they broke them up between, um, I think it was 110 was one of them. And I don't remember who the other one was. But what would happen is when we got into Marsha, no one's radios worked and no one could call back to Rifleman, which was our command, except for like my radio. So I would call to Rifleman 
and then back there they would they would determine the agency send it out and then call back to me and send the information back okay so um so you were your call for fire was being relayed from you to someone in the rear and then they were turning around and taking it and sending it again as if it was an original call for fire basically correct okay Okay. Yep. And this obviously will, I mean, if, I don't know if you want to get into it later, we can talk about how this became an issue later on, uh, in the deployment, but what, I mean, what was your feelings when those first rounds started impacting? This is your first time doing a call for fire. And then it's like real world. You're really being shot at. I'm 20, I'm 24. We're doing this deployment. We're like, we're going to shoot everything. Let's get in there and, you know, show these bad guys what's what when you're young, you know, so every male has the warrior gene and they just want to fight and prove themselves. You know, and then especially when you train for it and then go and do it and you're there at a huge like what they say is like going to be a historic event and stuff like that. And you have an opportunity to because when you're there and you're young, you don't have big picture things. You're not like, well, we're clearing this area out so we can do sustained operations for years to come and bring in radio towers. And well, as you're thinking, like some man higher up than us sent us into combat and I'm here fighting with these guys. I'm going to do whatever I can to keep them safe. Like that's what you're thinking about. And to be able to like bring in big guns and to like you know, essentially like give it to the enemy. You just think that's great and exciting and stuff like that. And all the people that are there with you, it's a huge morale booster for everyone who's young and nervous because we had two drops of boots that came to us one, like one week before we left and one, like a day before we left. And a bunch of them are out Mm -hmm. there with us. So they were like, I'm at MCT like 15 days ago. And now I'm here in Afghanistan. That's uh, so right. Yeah. Yeah. So for, I mean, for some of them and some of them performed super well, they were, you know, they joined to serve their country and they served their country well. And it was good to see them doing that. But anything that was a morale boost in an environment like that, because, I mean, you talk about misinformation. When you're about to go into a place like that, they're like, analysts expect like 60% casualties with our company and this and that and stuff. I mean, like, that's absurd. Yeah. You'd be so combat ineffective. I mean, it's unrealistic, but just a lot of the, you know, Lance Corporal Underground starts flying and those rumors are just all over the place. And, they have tanks there and this and that and Russian minefields everywhere. Yeah. And it gets in your head. You know, yeah. So, yeah, it's funny uh, it, that coming back to the noise you're talking about. The first time I ever heard that noise um, was after I lap moved, I got to 10th Marines in November of 2009. And um, it was my very first, I think I've told this story on here before, but it was my very first field op. Um, you know, I just come from motor T now I'm a, I'm not, I'm an 08 XX at that point. Cause I didn't even been to MOS school yet. And two tens like, Hey, we're going to the field. And for those that are familiar with Camp Lejeune, OP five is an area right next to, you know, it's like one of the main, um, uh, observation areas right next to the impact area. There's a big tower, there's a big open field area. And then, and then like the berm and then the impact area. And we're all set up. We set up our base X tent you know, the fire support coordination center and stuff like that. We're, we're getting all set up and everything and it's getting dark out and they're like, Hey, well, one range control comes over and they're like, Hey, you can't be set up on this little hill. You know, the little knoll that is at OP five, that the towers on, they're like, you yep. can't be set up there because that, that causes uh, erosion of the hill. He's like, you're going to have to move all your stuff down there. And he points at a spot and our, and Gunny Klein was like, uh, can we talk about this? Maybe we'll do it on the next field op. Cause we're completely set up. Like all of our antennas are set up. All the OEs are set up and stuff like that. And he comes back range controls. Like, all right, you can stay here for this field op next time. Be down there, but you need to move your vehicle. So we move our vehicles and we're sitting there and we're waiting on the check round. Right. Which is for those that don't know, uh, in artillery, 
the first round is called the check round. They shoot it, and it and all it is is to make sure, like, hey, the round is going to impact in the impact area. There's an observer there watching, and he calls back, like, round observed safe, and he gives, uh, you know, his spottings. And this first, this first round, the check round, the safety round, we're sitting there, and I'm with Delara, Juan Delara, and um, we're listening to the radio, and I hear, shot, target number, da 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 and you hear the poof off in the distance. And then I just hear boom and this super loud explosion i'm like damn like that's a lot closer than like you know i mean that's a lot louder out here by the impact area and delara was like dude that was too loud and then we hear klein his him he's outside the basex and you know he's super country for anybody that knows him he's like check fire check fire (laughs) it just starts screaming check fire we're like what the fuck so we just start hitting every radio check fire check fire check fire and um yeah, the round landed 50 meters from us, right where that range control guy told us that we should set up. He, the exact spot that he pointed to that where he wanted us to tear down and reset is where it landed. And I was like, holy shit, dude. Like, that's crazy. And this is my first time. I'm like, Who, what the? what is going on out here with artillery? Maybe I shouldn't have moved into this. But I just wanted to to add on that 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 sound is a is a strange sound. And those that know what it is know, you know, what it is. And it's kind of a disheartening if you don't know that it's, you know, going to land out, you know, in a safe area and stuff like that. But anyway, um, how, how did like your actions as an observer or, or, or you can just talk in general, your unit, how did they kind of shift? Like how, over the time of the battle, over the 13 days or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that you guys showed up and you had a plan in mind. This is how we're going to do it. And then obviously real world comes into play and you start seeing how things are, some things are effective and some things aren't. How did your guys' kind of like game plan to fight the enemy shift or at all, if it did at all um, during that fight? Um, Really, we just did a lot of what we were told and we didn't see the bigger picture. It was like, you guys are going to go here and here's what we want you to do there. There's just a lot of that. One thing that did change quite a bit is uh, like you talked about radio operators. Our company had a couple radio operators that were pretty good, but they generally got kept back at, uh, Raleigh, like the CP, once we got there, we did most of our operations out of five points in the Raleigh area. And, uh, Castagna, our radio operator was in the, in the CP the whole time. And I was, like you said, was very good at the radio. So I did a lot of the fills for people out at all the OPs that we established. I did a lot of that stuff. And also I was mainly the voice for a lot of the, the, the patrols that would go out with the platoons or the squads that were going out to do anything like that because I had a radio I was older. I could talk pretty clearly, and I ended up giving tons of intelligence to. Uh, I acted like as part of the intelligence cell because we had one intel guy that stayed back at five points. Because at first he would go out, but there's you know there's three platoons with three squads each. We got nine elements going out all the time. It's hard for him to get what's going mm-hmm. on there. Instead, I would I took it for my platoon. Greer took it. The uh, mortar fo took it for the third platoon. We both did it for the second platoon, and we just we would feed him a lot of the intelligence of things that we saw and civilian movements and where the firefights took place and things like that and where we found IEDs and when firefights took when, when they would take place and to build patterns of life things like that and uh so my role kind of switched I spent a lot of time with the squad leader and also um you know we, we spent a lot of time out at these OPs we'd break down our element and I would lead a few guys and he would lead a few guys and we just kind of switch throughout the day because we had like x number of patrols they expected from us X number of night patrols, things like that. I'd go out with the snipers almost every single night and observe for them and uh, 
talk to riflemen with either UAVs or air that we had and things like that. Some funny stories came about doing stuff like that. And I just, I tried to just be like the jack of all trades for the mm-hmm. company. One, to give our scouts a good name and two, just to, you know, you know, every man just has a drive to be the best they can. I just felt like that was my way to contribute, you know, because in the infantry, they're all, you know, they're grunts and they're infantrymen and they're riflemen. And then outsiders are just pokes to them generally, unless you, you know, unless you prove yourself sure. to them. And I, I feel like I pretty quickly did that with my company and was used as a great asset with them and was proud to do that and glad to be a part of fighting six Marines in that capacity, you know? Yeah, man. No, I mean, you're part of history, bro. Like I talked to, uh, I think it was Daniel Gordon. I was talking to about being in the invasion. Um, they did, uh, during the invasion of Iraq, he was in Mosul, which isn't something that people really talk about very often, how they flew into Mosul and kind of took that area. And it's like, dude, you know, if you, it's kind of weird to think about it, but if you step back and look at it, it's like you were part of an invasion force that took over another country and like, like defeated an enemy's army army. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. as, as weird as that is to say out loud, like you're part of history and like, that's, you know, that's just something, I don't know. It's just, for me, it's, it's interesting to, to think about it in that way. You know what I'm saying? Um, can you kind of talk about how, you know, you, you talked about all the stuff you were carrying when you first got there and, and in your loadout, can you tell us how your loadout shifted over time as operations changed and how, how your understanding of the enemy also changed? <clears throat> Yes. So, uh, we started establishing a bunch of OPs, which was really funny because we, there's this main route and I think it was called, I think it was like 502 was the route. And it was the main road in between five points and, uh, Marja proper. Well, there was a bunch of problems with that route and, uh, enemy movements along them. So they had us establish four OPs Mm -hmm. along it. And it was like 16 miles between the two areas, some huge distance. So every couple of miles we built these OPs. And the first one we built, we went to the farthest one and built it, and we called it OP1 Kenobi. <laughs> and then we went and built the second one, and we called it OP2 or OP, what do we call it? OP2D2 is what we called the second one. And then we called the, other, the third one OPC3PO, and we called the fourth one OP4 Calrissian, just because we're like, we're out of droid names or Star Wars names. So that's just what we named them all Star Wars names that's along funny. the way. And we set these up, and you would carry a large pack and have a lot of gear, carry it to your OP, and then there was always an element staying in the OP. So we would stage our stuff in there, and we launched all patrols north and south based on those OPs there. So I would carry my huge pack with the same, the big radio, and when I would got to the OP, I would leave my big radio there so we all could use it. I would only use the 152. I would take the ICOM chatter, and I bought um, off of some guy – a camelback barrage i think it was called what it was called it was a really small camelback probably like you know like this big but it had two pouches mm-hmm. on it and the big pouch would fit my vector perfectly and the top pouch would fit my dagger and spare batteries perfectly and i'd keep my extra antennas inside where the bladder went and I, we'd do all patrols of that and we tried to do patrols as light as possible because at first we had mtvs in huge packs and for those of you who don't remember the mtv vest it was this huge giant vest designed to survive catastrophic id blasts in iraq yeah I mean, no mobility, tons of weight. It just like broke your back just wearing it. And then in the middle of the deployment, we switched to the uh, Eagle Industries plate carriers. Those are nice. I like those. And they were excellent. And we said, well, now we have mobility because the problem we would have is we would get engaged. 
They started about 600 meters out. We would go to pursue them. They would move, keep engaging us while gaining ground, and then finally get to a spot where they'd hop in vehicles and be gone, and they would just wear us out. We'd chase them for kilometers, unable to gain ground on them, and then they'd be gone. Halfway through, we switched to all the light loads, and we would only maybe take one or two packs for the whole squad now while we were going out. Everyone else would be as slick as they could be, and we would try to use mobility as a, you know, as an asset to move quicker to catch these yeah. guys, uh, stop, you know, cut them off from getting away and things like that. And that did help quite a bit. And uh, it was good to be able to have a staging place to put all your food, gear, and ammo and things like that and then be able to just move So lighter. were you guys going to the observation post, the OPs, and, like, you were staging there for, like, you're going to be there for a week? Weeks okay. at a time. So, so yeah, you were just rotating. There were elements that were rotating out of these OPs. And once you got there, it was like, all right, I'm Correct. here for two weeks, and these are our patrol schedules that we have to take care of. Okay. Correct. Okay. Um, how was life different between being at the OP and being back with the main element back at the, the I don't know what you want to call it, patrol base or cop? Yeah, it, it's like, it, I mean, it's anywhere. The farther away from the flagpole you get, the more freedom you feel like mm-hmm. you have. So we had a huge well just in front of this compound that we spent most of our time at. We built a big sandbag wall around it, and we all were just lounging it like it was a hot tub in Silkies. <laughs> and it was outside the wire. You're not supposed to leave without gear on, you know what I'm saying? But like, oh, no one's looking. And we built this big wall because they would always look with the G-Boss and be like, hey, OP3, so-and-so doesn't have gloves on. I was about on. to just mention Get those that. gloves on. <laughs> so we always joked and called the G-Boss the eyes of Sauron. So we would just build sandbag walls to block it off from us so we could go and swim and stuff like that or walk around in our silkies because they're like, you'll be in your gear all yeah. day. You know, like go inside the building and then you can go down to skivvies with boots on and your gloves and stuff. But like I've actually you know, we didn't I've actually been in the COC when uh, the – I remember the ops chief for 3-6 I think it was the ops chief for 3 Six's 2011 appointment – Saw somebody on one of the cameras was like, hey, tell that guy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, really, man? You're micromanaging from like 20 miles away? Like, get yeah. out of here with that. Uh, yeah. How, so at this point, you know, I mean, obviously you were interacting with Afghans throughout this entire thing, like local civilians. Once you guys were kind of more established, you established these observation posts and you were running like presence patrols around them and stuff like that. What, what was kind of the vibe you were getting from the local populace and stuff? And did it change over time throughout the deployment? Uh, so, yeah, at the beginning, a lot of the locals were real scared of us. Months into it, you know, now it's become normal. We've been there together. We didn't do anything oppressive to them. We didn't try to destroy a lot of their stuff, anything like that. Uh, you know, we would talk to them. We had a really good interpreter with us that was a 60-year-old man named Aziz from California that would just, you know, let me go talk to the people for a little while. Like, yeah, yeah, you go ahead. See what, you know, where they need help and stuff like that. And then he would put out the word like, you know, if you have hurt kids, or you need medicine and stuff, come talk to us and, you know, we'll help you out. So all the time we'd have people showing up like, my kid's ill. He's got a bad fever. Can you give mm-hmm. him something? We would give him pills. One kid cut his arm really bad on a piece of farm equipment and our doc stitched them all up and took care of him out there and had him come back a couple of days to check on him. And so I think like the main locals didn't have a problem. We'd have some Taliban fighters that would come and they would get, some would get killed when they were trying to flee and they would have the locals go and ID them, and they're like, they're not from around here. We don't know who they are. They're not from around here. They come from somewhere yeah. else. So a lot of the fighters were coming up from other places to do the fighting and then yeah. leave. We had this guy. This is one of my favorite stories about my first deployment. We had this guy we called the watermelon guy. And um, 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, generally, uh, Ford observers go to like a GFO course. They learn to talk to aircraft and things like that. I talked to a lot of aircraft while I was there. I flew a few Americans out who got wounded, and I flew some Afghans out who got wounded, and I flew some locals out who got wounded. And talking to air is awesome. They're really calm, really relaxed. You just give them some instructions, and they can pretty much they can work with anything yeah. pretty much. We had this guy, watermelon guy. It's getting close to the end of our deployment. Super hot. And he would always travel to Lashkar Guy, which was uh, east of us, and come back to Marsha proper. And we'd be like, can you get us some watermelons? He'd bring us a bunch of huge watermelons. And we loved him. We're like, oh, this is awesome. He's leaving one time, and we start hearing a bunch of shooting. There was a small cluster of compounds just a little bit west of where we were, a couple hundred meters. Hear a bunch of shooting, and we hear one of the... Uh, one just one of the guys that's up on post scream. They're shooting the watermelon guy. They're shooting the watermelon oh. guy. So we're like, gear up, gear up. And we run out uh, like half a squad to go check on him. And they shot him and then left in white vans and they were gone. And we get there, we open the door and he shot a bunch. And we're like, oh, he's gone. He's gone. Caught air for him. Throw purple smoke for him. Pull him to a field where this bird can land. And we're all disappointed. He flies away. And we're like, dang, he's going to come back. I'm like, dude, he's not going to make it. He was shot a ton of times, dude. He's gone. We're there. We hear a horn honk a couple months later, and we look. This car pulls up. He gets out with watermelons, and we're like, watermelon <laughs> man. And he comes in, and he's like, he's like, look at my – he's like, oh, my teeth. America's so good. Like, lifts up his shirt. He's got, like, wounds all over and, like, patches and, like, skin grafts. And he's like, oh. He's like, my hearing good. Like, had a beard. Like, he had a haircut and cleaned up and everything. He's like, so good. He's like, teeth are fixed. Amazing. They flew him away fixed his gunshot wounds and then fixed everything else and brought him back and it just made him love America even That's more. Cool. So he kept so he kept bringing uh, watermelons to us and on our rip, we ripped with um, I think 2-9 and it was golf company specifically and there was a guy that was at 10th Marines for a little while that replaced me. Uh, Dorman, yeah, I Dorman. think. Replaced me and when we're doing the rip, we're like, this is watermelon guy. Y'all protect him, okay? He's a vital asset. All right, make sure he's all right. He's yeah. all right. And then they just they just continued, you know, having him get them watermelons through that whole deployment That's as well. Cool. Yeah, yep. yeah. We had um um we would also medevac people, um, locals and stuff that if they were injured. I remember multiple times we had either like kids pulled boiling water over on themselves on accident or uh, the pro because they all cook on propane. For those that don't know, they're all this is. I mean, it's hard to understand the. <laughs> the agrarian society that is the countryside of Afghanistan, unless you've kind of seen it where you're like, Oh, okay. Well, they all live in mud huts. They sleep outside on rugs at, you know, when it's hot in the summertime, they all cook on little propane stoves and propane fires. They bathe and drink and everything from the canal. Like it's a very, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you want to describe it. It's a very rustic kind of living. And um, yeah, we had multiple casualties from kids like, burning themselves on cooking fires. I think a propane tank exploded one time and stuff like that. And we would try to, we would try to get them out there because one, one, obviously it's the right thing to do. Right. You know, and two, obviously it doesn't, it doesn't hurt the cause. You know, if we're trying to show that we're, Hey, we're here to help. Then that's one of the things that we got to do to show that we're here to help is kind of help these people out medically and stuff. And for a lot of those people, the, you know, the medical treatments and stuff that you're describing, even having like a, a, simple examination is something a lot of them have never even experienced before and uh diarrhea medicine yeah yeah it's uh it's just it's hard for people to understand that that kind of lifestyle unless you've kind of seen it and uh 
I don't, again, I come back to it. It makes you appreciate, you know, what we have here and, and the different things that, you know, the ability to, to kind of do whatever you want here in the United States compared to how those guys are guys and girls and stuff are living over there. Um, as, as time kind of went on, did you think, did you think that you guys were having, or did it seem like you guys were having a big difference in the city? Like, did you notice a lack of fighters starting to like, were replacements for the fighters coming or was it sustained? It seemed like it was a never ending cycle of foreign fighters come in. And real quick, before you answer, I will say that while we were in Sangin, the local Taliban guys, the guys that were from Sangin and were aligned with the Taliban dudes were actually getting into fights with the foreigners that were coming in and fighting against us as well, because the foreigners that were coming in to fight were way more aggressive Were way didn't care. They didn't care about the locals. They would treat them like shit. They would shoot them. They'd kill them and stuff like that. And that became like an issue. So I just wanted to add that to the point where that you made that <clears throat> there were a lot of foreign fighters there. Yes. Uh, have you read the book, the fighters? I haven't. Have you heard about no. it? So for you or for any listeners who want to read about this, uh, the initial invasion of Marja from 3-6, there's a, a man named C.J. Chivers, and he's a Pulitzer Prizing journalist that wrote a book called The Fighters, and he features my, uh, my platoon commander, me and a bunch of other people by name in this book, specifically talking about the invasion of Marja. So it's on Amazon and everything. It's called The Fighters, C.J. Chivers. And... Um, yeah, like you said, the foreign fighters. So an example is um, we we were just doing just um, a basic patrol. And as the months would go on, we were gaining more and more ground, it seemed like. We would kill or push them out of these areas that they were holding. And we would take a foothold to it to where the bubble around our area was getting bigger and bigger. And then they were bringing more and more foreign fighters up. And it, as the deployment went on, more and more the locals came back too because like, oh, these problem people are now gone, so like I can return to my home because where all these homes were, they were fighting out of these people's homes. Well, now we've taken all those, and that's within our AO now. Mm. So essentially, we patrol by those every single day. No one comes up there and bothers them. If they do, they would warn us about it. And we got in a group with we got in a fight with a group of um, fighters who came up way from the south in a white van, got out, started attacking. We were pursuing them, and we were right on them. And we saw them running through a field, and one of them turned and shot a farmer in the stomach from like five feet away. He falls down. They pursue. They keep going. We get there. We pick up the farmer, take him back to cover and render aid to him and no longer pursue them. So they're like, oh, if we just shoot locals, they'll stop and render aid and, and we can get out of here. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of the deployment, they started doing things like that. And we'd have to take these civilians and fly them out of there, get, get them aid. And they knew that we wouldn't follow them after that because that was that, you know, essentially. Because now at this point, we've cleared out the whole area. We're trying to hold it and start the rebuild phase of it. Mm -hmm. So that these people can get back with their lives and we can also operate within this area. So that was something that happened. And if we took too much ground in a certain area, they would just – they would probe the lines and find the weakest area and then focus in on that and bring in a lot of activity. We would uh, plus up our efforts there, force them out of there, and they would probe around again and find somewhere else and start coming back. And then there's just kind of a lot of cat and mouse up until we left. Yeah. Did you guys find certain areas that were like, hey, if we cross this line, we're going to get attacked? Like no matter what, all the time. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, all the time. Those lines shifted too as we would, because once we found those lines, we would make a big effort to push further into them and remove those lines. But there were certain spots where it was like, "Yep, yeah, don't go this way, don't go that way, don't go this way." That's definitely going to happen. Well, like you would cross the lines if you wanted to fight. Yeah. They'd be like, "Hey, I want you to do a contact patrol today, so go and you know where to go." And we'd be like, "Ah, we'll go to this one, and it'll start right here." 
it would go start right there. And now as a fire support man, knowing that you're going to be crossing an area where, you, you know, hey, if we cross this line, we're going to get attacked. What were you doing? Were you doing like fires planning ahead of time? Like, hey, let's go ahead and make Correct. pre-planned targets and stuff because we know this is where we're going to get a shot from. The entire deployment I sent up, I made tons of pre-planned targets, gave them all to our FO who was back, and he would pass them up to the main fire cell, which was where our command was, which was called Rifleman. And we had pre-planned targets all over the place. And then, um, I mean, I called a lot of fire support. We called rockets, mortars. We called everything, except for, I think, except for naval guns there. We had some Spectre airships there. We had, uh, I mean, we had A-10s come through. We had mixed skids. We had that patch of, uh, or that section of Apaches at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we called all kinds of fire support. As the deployment went on, it seemed like more and more they would, um, because the uh, Afghan government would say like, oh, you know, you can shoot at uh, mosque and religious things like that if they're, if they're all in it and they're killing locals and this and that, and you can get them out of there. And then it changed to no, don't fire anything like that. And it changed to any building with a speaker on it that they even prayer out of, like, you can't do that. So they started trying to, like, make more buildings, you know, more speakers are going up and more places are becoming prayer centers. And they would just kind of use those as, like, you know, caches and stuff like that. And then at the end of the deployment, it was like, we don't want you going into those. So, like, uh, the Afghans could go in, but we would just go and set the cord and let them go and look for the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. By the end of it. Yeah, I saw the, um, you know, on the <clears throat> following year when I was there as the fire chief, I got a list of the no strike list, the no strike list. And it's all the little like, it's like circles on the map of all the mosque or like locations where for whatever reason they're on the no strike list. A lot of them were mosque or, you know, mosque with scare quotes there. Um, mm-hmm. It was sometimes difficult because, like you said, they were for sure definitely using those as meeting locations, planning locations, staging weapons, you know, staging fighters and stuff like that. And the ROEs were just so, you know, trying to work around some of the ROEs was just kind of difficult. Um, and on that, as 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 you were there, did you see any major shifts in the ROEs and like what you were approved to do at the beginning maybe and not approved to do at the end yes I mean, we, we, you know we joked about it how it was like the wild west at the beginning um they were very lax and then by the end they you know it would just more and more it become more and more constricted towards the end of it to where now if there's even a mosque in any of the effects radiuses of any of the missions you're trying to fire like it's not even a go like i'm trying to hit this building yeah but the piece of eye is still like 14 percent at a a fragment may come down and land in this compound. Like, so no, you're disapproved for it. And uh, a lot of the fire support was ramped up at the beginning and slowly ramped down at the end to where at the end, uh, I was just doing a lot of 81s and 60s. And um, I mean, Excalibur got shut down like halfway through the deployment due to some GPS errors. Mm -hmm. There was the huge high Mars incident that shut down high Mars for a while there. Um, uh, the REs where you can't have any effects hitting things that are prayer centers or religious buildings cut a lot of 155s out because a lot of the areas we're fighting are all those. It's all open fields. They're not fighting in the middle of the open fields. They're in the clusters of compounds while we're in the open yeah. fields. So trying to get something approved for that, you know, uh, we mainly was a lot of a loom, like 155 a loom was like at the end of the plant was like the main asset we would call other than 81s and 60s. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. Um, the, the ROE constraints, I get it. I mean, I understand I understand some of it to a point, but I think a lot of commanders take the intent of the ROEs and go above and beyond and make them even more restrictive because they're looking out for their own hide. You know, and, and I mm-hmm. personally 
have been under fire, accurate fire, you know, almost being shot and, and having my fire missions denied because I remember in one specific instance, the guy was standing next to a mud wall. It wasn't even a compound. It was like a mud wall in a field. And it was like, dude, this dude mm-hmm. is like literally shooting inches from my head right now. And I couldn't, and mm-hmm. I have a Harrier on target, but no, nope, no approval. Three, four wouldn't do it. I was just like, shit like that is very frustrating. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned, you mentioned two things Excal. for those that may not be aware, like Excalibur rounds or the GPS guided, uh, what it is, it's like a GPS kit that's put on a, uh, on a round on a one, five, five round, uh, how it's around. At that time, when you were there, the Marine Corps, maybe the Army as well, but the Marine Corps, I know, were still uh, working through all their test rounds. So that's why there was a, an issue uh, while you were there is because they were still working on, they were still going through their inventory of test rounds, which weren't perfect. And then once those mm-hmm. were shot out, once we finished <clears throat> up with those and they got the actual like, hey, here's our final style round or whatever, then I think... Uh, I think a lot of the issues that they were having before, because there was some dudding issues and stuff like that, that that was occurring. Um, I think a lot of that was no longer a case. And my, in my own experience, we didn't get to really use XCAL. I actually, I didn't get to shoot XCAL at all on my 2011 deployment because the time of flight was just so long because everywhere, no one was fighting around Fiddler's Green around that area. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the fighting had kind of calmed down. It was all, it was all north of Marja proper. So once you start looking at the time of flight, you know, for that, it was longer than high Mars. So we focus most, mostly on high Mars and, you know, high Mars is an accurate, super great weapon. I'm sure you're aware artillery right now, you know, they're revamping the artillery battalions in the Marine Corps. So instead of having one battalion of high Mars on each coast or whatever, now it's going to be one, I think one tube battery on each coast, you know, and it's flip-flopping. So it's kind of a strange thing. Yeah. Do you want to talk about <clears throat> the, the high Mars incident from your deployment? Yeah. I mean, I can, uh, can, can you uh, kind of explain, um, can you kind of explain like what the actions of that, that day, what led up to the high Mars, um, call for fire being executed and then kind of what happened. So it's two days into our landing in Marja. It's February 14th, you know, and everyone jokes about how they want, you know, well, Valentine's Day massacre and things like that. And the battlefield was pretty chaotic. There was a lot of stuff going on. No one knows what happens for sure either. And, uh, you know, I had to got, as soon as it happened, I got talked to by a JAG officer and all this. And um, they, I don't know, I think the final determination was that there was a uh, GPS error of some kind or something like that. So I'm to the south over here. Further south of me is a huge cluster of compounds that's shooting at a whole bunch of our elements. Only one radio is working. So people are passing things to me and I'm passing it up and then they're passing it up and then it's coming back down. Uh, with high Mars, you're supposed to, what was our SOP for that time period was the, uh, it's on the observer's command to fire. So if you call in a high Mars mission, it goes through the whole approval process. Cause it goes super high. So you have to clear a really high airspace comes back to you, and if you're still wanting it, it comes to you, and then you say, yes, I give approval, fire, then it fires. Um, some HIMAR missions got called in. It got passed through a whole bunch of elements, and then like hours later got fired and then hit a wrong target. And where I was, it hit the buildings right now, and the building had 12 civilians in it. It was like one man, like six women, and a bunch of kids. And they all were killed except for one like four-year-old girl 
came walking out of it. And um, so that was like a real downer for all, you know, all the people involved that shut down High Mars for a while because the investigation happened, that shut down Fire Sport for a while. And it's just a couple of days into when, like, the most chaotic, po- like, portion of the initial invasion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, there's people, like, fighting all over. We got, like, birds dropping munitions. So I'm in the front. I'm doing, like, artillery. And we got mortars going. And we were shooting javelins. And we were having, uh, like, fixed wing come in. And we are having, like, rotary wing come in. And I was doing some, like, type 2 controls with... Uh, a JTEC that we had, and then our FAC was controlling some air also. So there's like different air assets doing things, but like not everyone knows what's going on. So it's really chaotic as a whole, and it hits the building next to us. And then um, the groups behind us thought it hit like the correct target. And then this girl walks out and we're like, oh, it's not the right target. Mm-hmm. And we have to go in there. And then we're taking a bunch of those new guys I was telling you about. And if you want to, if you want to, to hear about this in detail you can read the book from the fighters because that's it covers this quite a bit because this was a big thing that happened for my specific platoon and the company at the time and um you know it the piece of eye for a high mars is like 13 meters it's pretty small It's, it's really accurate generally and kills a lot just in a small area and it went right into one room that had all the civilians and essentially killed them all so uh, I didn't talk to my wife for like two or three months into the deployment when we finally got like sat phones and got a chance to call and I called and she's like, Oh, you're all right. You're okay. Hi, Mars. Like I heard about it in the news, like what's going on? Is everyone safe and stuff? And like, it was obviously a big enough deal that it made it back to the news and she heard about it back where she was, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, uh, I don't, you know, the JAG officer came, got involved. A lot of people have speculations on what they think happened or didn't happen, but I don't even know if there's anyone that knows from start to finish, like the whole story clearly. Really? Okay. You know, so I mean, from your perspective, cause you were back in the fleet now at 10th Marines at that time where you're not, yeah, Didn't I, you just make it there. Yeah, I was. And, and you guys heard about it. What was, what'd you guys get about it? Um, I honestly, the only thing I heard about <clears throat> it was on the news. There was no, no real talk about, you know what? So the weird thing is, is at 10th Marine regiment at the time, it didn't seem like there was any elements that were taking information from what was happening overseas and actively like disseminating that amongst the battalions and the unit and kind of, you know, adjusting training or whatever to kind of, you know, shift for the focus that, of what's actually happening. So mm-hmm. I never heard about it from 10th Marines or anyone even talk about it. I only saw it in the news. I remember reading about it in the news and being like, Oh shit, mm-hmm. man, that's like, obviously that's not good. You know? Um, how did that, did seeing that, I mean, that happened, did, did having that occur change the way you employed fire support at all? Did it make you think differently about the effects of the rounds? Um, and did it, how did it affect your platoon? You know, cause that's, I mean, let's be honest, that's not an easy <clears throat> thing to see or to have been even even on the edge of being part of, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that's tough for people. That's a, and rightfully so. And, and an investigation should have occurred and should have found out who was in the wrong because those civilians mm-hmm. should have been killed. That's just how it is. Yeah. So how Correct. did you as a person that was there and that was in, involved <clears throat> in the situation, not necessarily, I'm not saying it's your fault or anything like that, but how mm-hmm. did that affect you as a fighter, you know, providing this fire support? So, uh, it happened. Two things happened. One, uh, I was like, dang, man, uh, that's terrible that it happened. And I wonder if it could have been prevented 
just within all of us mm -hmm. with the breakdown of communication. So everything I did after that, I double and triple checked everything. If it was being passed to me and going up or vice versa, or if it's something I was going to do, I would be like, hey, how's this looking, chief? And we were just, I myself was more cautious with it. But I mean, at the time you're young and you're fighting a war and like we just, you know, I mean, it was like months and months of fighting all day, every day. And, you you know, I wasn't like it. Uh, but I mean, I see a lot of people that just kind of add to like F them, whatever. You know, I'm just here for for us. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I've never taken that attitude. Uh, I still to this day, I'm not like, oh, screw all of them. They're all terrorists and they're terrible and this and that. You know, it's like I said earlier, it's a people thing. And in people, you have good, bad and everything in between. Yeah, right. So sure. you have to think of it like that or else it will galvanize you against a whole class of people or something like that. And that's not what you want. Um, while they're fighting, I feel like I was like, dang, man, collateral damage of war because we're in war. Like I need to stay focused and keep it, you know, try to do what I can to keep everyone alive. Yeah. Then I come back from the deployment and then I grow older and stuff like that. And then I think like now it starts to – it affects me more now where I'm like, dang, man, like so sad and unfortunate that those people were there. Two sides are fighting and they're caught in the crosshair of it and it, not by any of their own you know, actions or anything like that. Wrong place at the wrong time and just how tragic that is and you know, yeah. that's all you really can say to things like that. Yeah. For sure, man. And it's not, this isn't any uh, isolated incident, you know, like civilian mm -hmm. casualties happen and it's, uh, and, and you know what blue on blue happens. That's just kind of shows you that it doesn't, even though we continue to improve our technology, our ability to target specific targets and stuff like that. At the end of the day, it's still war fog of war occurs. Confusion occurs. Um, weapon, you know, weapons malfunction it's just it's just kind of one of those things and uh i just i i you know I, I wanted to bring it up just because i think people need to realize that that it's not like you know people talk about civilian casualties almost some people talk about it almost as if it's like an intentional <clears throat> thing like we just don't care you know the war fighter doesn't even care they're just slaying civilians and there may be people out there like that to be honest i mean that might be the case with the person and mm -hmm. if it is, they should be, you know, prosecuted for that and stuff like that. I feel like that's less so the case than what yes. than people just trying to do what they're told, protect those around them and not hurt anyone and get out of there as well. And it's just an, a super, super unfortunate incident that just kind of it happens. And it's just mm -hmm. it's it's hard to say like it happens and kind of move on with it like it's nothing because it's people, it's lives, it's stuff like you said people that had nothing to do with it that were just kind of trying to live their life and stuff like that. But anyway, I just wanted, like I said, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because it's a real world. Um, it's a real world example of things that could happen as, as a fire support personnel. And it's something that happens in every war. And I honestly don't see it changing much at all, especially now that we're relying more on drone technology rather than someone that's eyes on the ground and can actually see what's occurring on the ground and stuff like that. Um, shifting a little bit, I want to say that I think you might be the first person I ever met that uploaded a video to YouTube. I, I think that was like back when YouTube was like kind of new and stuff. And you, mm -hmm. I remember you coming back and showing us this video of a javelin that failed. So still there. Yeah. Epic combat javelin fail. I'm going to, I'm going to pull that video or, or you can send it to me. I'm going to, I'm going to post it up on Instagram. Uh, when I'm talking about Great. this, when I'm talking about this podcast, but can, for those that haven't seen it yet, can you kind of explain, um, what the actions of that day were like, what was going on for that day? And then what happened in that moment? Yes. Yeah, so it's funny because that's still, that's the video with my most views out of all my bands or anything else that I do. That's my most viewed video. 
And it's called Epic Combat Javelin Fail, if you want to find it. And what was happening, this is probably a week into uh, us getting into Marja. And I'm the farthest south element. And uh, our command calls up and says, hey, we want you to do a combined a combined assault on this area. And then go and clear this big cluster of buildings. So we set up a couple sets of 240s to fire and suppress these enemy who were engaging us so they wouldn't move. We were going to do two javelin strikes. We had 81s and uh, 60s constantly peppering it. And then we were I was going to bring in a, uh, a Hellfire and strike it also. And while we're doing all of this, I'm videotaping my buddy, and he's recording, or uh, he's firing this javelin I'm recording what it for. What were you recording it on? It was an old Fujifilm digital camera that we bought off eBay. It was like $24 on eBay in 2009. I mean, it was like four, you know, like 1.4 megapixels. It's terrible. So I'm just like, I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll record your first javelin shot because it, he's fired in training, but never in real life. This will be his first real life javelin shot. And he was going to do, I forgot what the, there's, there's high angle. And I think nominal. I forgot what there, there's high angles, what they're and then nominal. And I think he was just going to do a nominal shot because he was trying to shoot it into a front mm-hmm. door. So he gets all there and we're all ready. And they all yell fire in the hole and he fires it. And the launch motor shoots correctly but the flight motor doesn't engage so it hits the ground right in front of us flips over and lands in a ditch and is aimed right oh at our wall God. and i just yell it hit the ground in front of us and they're like what what'd you say i'm like it hit the ground right in front of us and they all scream and run away from the wall we all jump off the walls and all running and run back and we're like what's going on because it's got a 13 pound or something shape charge in there that would blast through the wall and kill him who's there so we wait a while it doesn't go off we call eod and say like hey what's the likelihood the flight motor will kick in they're like oh we don't think it will it stayed there for days until they finally until they finally rolled in whatever on day thirteen, and then they set up a cordon and blew it in place, and then uh, that was it for that. But it was just so funny to see because you see videos like that, you know, scrolling YouTube and stuff. That French guy fires a rocket, and it falls out in oh, front yeah. of him, and he gets runs away and stuff like that. But you never think it's gonna like actually gonna happen to you, and then it happens, and we all just laughed about it. So super funny. Was that the only uh, was that the only kind of ordinance that you had an issue with, like a misfire or anything like that during the attack? Yeah, I mean, we fired we fired a ton of smalls, no problems. We fired uh, a bunch of AT fours, no problems. Fired a law, no problem. Um, yeah, I mean, in the one five fives fired fine. We didn't have any duds, and what we would do with the Excalibur. So you know how you had to put in the ballistic impact point, the BIP yeah. in for it? So because dudding was an issue, I just made the BIP the same as the target. So even if it failed to explode, it would still just smash and do a bunch of damage. Yeah. You know? But uh, I, we didn't have any fail. And um, the 60s and 81s were all fine. The marks were all fine. Yeah, I think that, that was, was it, it really. Huh? And you and you just happened yeah. to get it on video. Yeah, and it was you know a couple of days into the initial invasion and all the fighting when the fighting was at the highest yeah. peak. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, for those that don't know, the ballistic impact point, what the way that works with the XCAL round, because it's GPS guided, once the round is fired, then the GPS takes over and it kind of directs it, flies it to its target. Well, if you fire a round and the GPS doesn't kick in for some reason, it doesn't direct it, well, what you have to do as in fire support planning is you have to determine the BIP which means the ballistic impact point, where is it going to land if it's just fired and it lands on its own without ever being directed by the GPS? So that's what he's, that's what he's talking about there. And it's something I think they still work on or still do. I haven't, you know, obviously I'm out of the game for a couple of years now, but yeah. Yeah, man. So what was, you know, 
when you guys you guys had been there, you know, the entire time fighting through Marja and doing this whole thing in Marja and stuff like that, when it started to come to the end, you know, when you when your relief started coming in and you guys were getting ready to come back home, you know, how how were you feeling about the whole deployment? Because I always like to ask guys this, like you you go into a war, you've never been in combat, you've never done anything like that, and you go into it with one mindset, and then you come out of it with a different one. A lot of people do because you've seen things, the realities of of it have kind of shaped your your thinking and stuff. Did you experience that at all, or were you on the same kind of mindset as you had when you were going in? Yeah, I mean, towards the end of it, some of the a lot of the fighting ramped up because it was beginning, it was summer, it was warm out, it was like the end of July, beginning of August, when we were yeah. leaving. So we would be doing the rip and be doing just as much fighting with them, you know, as prior. But the mindset we all had was, you know, we were told like 60 percent casualties and stuff like that. And we did take a lot of casualties, but not as much as we thought. So to us, you know, we felt that we were fortunate that not as many people were hurt as what was initially told to us. Um, You know, a lot of the younger people, they're like, hey, you know, I live in a country a bunch of terrorists came and knocked down a bunch of buildings and kill a bunch of Americans. If I come over here and do this and stop them here. They can't make it to there. They felt good about that. And a lot of people, you know, like like I said earlier, uh, shared mutual uh, trauma, like builds deep bonds. I got there and like my goal was to try to protect every person I could that was in my squad and in the platoon and stuff like that. And um, the only casualty we had in our squad was one of the guys got shot through the arm at the beginning. It was the same time that my dagger was hmm. shot. Remember how my dagger no, got shot? No, the story? I don't remember the story. You can tell it. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, I thought you knew about that. He got shot in the arm, and this is in February, flies away to a defect for a few months, heals up, and comes back and rejoins us in Maine, finishes the deployment. So to like that, we all walked in together, we all walked out together. So for our squad specifically, like that, that was a That's win awesome, to us. Yeah. Our morale was up, and we felt like, you know, we felt like we, you know, we heard about some of the stories about some of the stuff that some of these Taliban would do to some of the locals and like, you know, um, you know, to like young girls and stuff like that. We didn't like that. We didn't like the way they treated the locals and things like that. Didn't like that. We thought we were making a difference and helping them out and letting them get back to normalcy. Uh, you know, building schools, building them wells, bringing cell phone towers and electricity and things like that to them. So leaving, we all were like, yeah, man, mission accomplished for us. That was the attitude yeah. we had. No, that's cool, though. I mean, you know, that's the uh, that's how a lot of guys, I think, are. You know, when I got back from my 13 deployment, which was the – craziest deployment I had was the scaredest I've been ever and stuff like that. But we all mm-hmm. came back and it was like, well, you know, I mean, we went to Sangin and we didn't even get hit by an IED one time. Like I think I count that as a win, you know, especially in an area like that. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of IEDs, how was the IED threat in Marja during the clear? Was it, was there a threat or, or did it grow over time? There was a huge suspected threat because there was a massive Russian minefield that was left. And just even all the people of Marja were like, we don't go in this area. So when we got there and the support got in, we had huge, the vehicle, what were the APOBs and the vehicles called? I don't remember. Miklicks. Miklicks. They would would fire tons of Miklicks and clear all these minefields. And we, you know, funny enough, a friend of mine just wrote me from Afghanistan that I haven't talked to in years is writing me right now. I haven't talked to him in a long time. That's yeah, awesome. that's so funny. Based on the election, I don't know what's going on, but he said, "What's going on with your state?" Because I'm from Michigan. He's from he's from Seattle, Washington. That's funny. Tell him to check out the show. He'll he'll enjoy the interview. Yeah, I'll so, tell him about it. That's so, so funny. When you got back, man, you know what's it for you? You know, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting job that we had. 
because we're attachments, right? So mm-hmm. when the unit comes back, you were with three six. When three six comes back, all those guys go back to their units. They stay, you know, they stay with three six. They all live in the barracks together. They all kind of, you know, they can all talk about the deployment and stuff like that. Whereas you're an attachment, so now you come back to tenth Marines. Did you feel like an alien coming back? Be like none of these people uh, understand what I just did, kind of deal. So I've always felt like tenth Marines. One, they're always like liaison. They're always like effing liaison, liaison. Li-, you know, we're always we're kind of separate from them mm-hmm. anyway. They're like, you, you're here for us. You know, like that's always kind of the attitude they've yeah. always had. And I felt very at home at 3-6. And even so, even after the deployment, I didn't come back right away. We stayed there. I did a bunch of duty in the barracks afterwards and stuff like that and did a, a lot of like the, you know, the end of deployment cycling down yeah. things. And then at the very end of that, I was the only one out of all of us that was scheduled to deploy with them again. So I stayed on their docket. Oh, remember? really? I'd, I, I came back to 10th Marines. You, Ori Howe, Mr. Xavier, yep. and who else? Shambo got added to that, but I but I was still on it. Mm-hmm. Remember, so like I still split my time between like three six and tenth Marines quite a bit during all of that, and um, prepared with them and talked to them and planned with them and doing all of that. And then we got—I don't remember any of the, name, the names of any of the officers who were going to go. Oh, uh, but um, Shoal, Captain Shoal. All right, and that's the end of the podcast. That's uh, where we got cut off. I'll get back with uh, with her and talk to him about getting a uh, second interview in. We'll talk about the rest of his career and what he's up to nowadays, get caught up and stuff like that. Uh, until then, make, again, make sure to check out his uh, Instagram page. It's at North Tower Studio, at BDB Band, and at Official Amber Band. Make sure to check those out. Support the guy. He uh, does good work out there doing that life metal uh, that we discuss so much. And, yeah. Check out my Instagram at former action guys at jkramergraphics and uh, the website jkramergraphics.com and have a good one. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.